welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I've titled this one, Standing Firm in the Lord. And if you remember from just uh, two weeks ago now, um, the last time we were in 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul had just reminded the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 is where we're at, um, he reminded them how he had sent Timothy to Thessalonica to, to strengthen and encourage that church, which was enduring persecution and affliction. And one of Paul's main points offered in verse 5 was how true Christians will persevere, they will endure uh, suffering for the name of Christ. In fact, we learned that Paul implies that that infliction, the same Greek word that we translate tribulation, uh, it supplies a, a sort of a litmus test for genuine Christians. For true spirit-indwelled Christians will not defect from the faith. Even when experiencing, experiencing severe duress, and uh, we have seen such spiritual perseverance uh, through the ages, through the centuries in the church, uh, throughout the course of church history, uh, yet it is our responsibility still to encourage one another, to, to strengthen one another, to endure and stand firm in the Lord. Uh, therefore, as Paul states in verse 5, he says, I also sent Timothy uh, to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter may have tempted you. Uh, we learn this is because the Apostle Paul, he was concerned that Jason and those, others, uh, those other Christians in Thessalonica, that they might have been tempted to uh, punch the easy button. All right. You know, life offers a much smoother road a much more pleasant road, a, a natural road, if you just preserve your life as is, rather than to sacrifice and follow in obedience, taking up your cross to follow Christ. So Paul, having been removed from Thessalonica due to persecution, remember he and Silas had to, to flee uh, by cover of darkness, because of that great affliction that arose there, uh, for this reason, Paul's checking in. He sent Timothy to check in uh, to see uh, whether they have restored uh, themselves to their previous life. Had they gone back to what they were uh, before the gospel had come to Thessalonica? It's the same context of a similar concern. Uh, it's in this context of a similar concern where the apostle John warns his readers this, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that is where we, we read this famous warning against, against spiritual apostasy, uh, which states in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19, very familiar warning, 
says they went out of us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, says John, so that it would be made manifest that they're not really of us. Then John says, but you have the anointing of the Holy One. So, the scriptural reality that we continue to find is that when living the Christian life, there exists no easy button. You can't just punch out at any time. You can't pull the ejection cord and, and, and bail. Those who are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise will remain. And this is the joy that the Apostle Paul celebrates in First Timothy, First uh, Thessalonians chapter three, Paul is celebrating a joy he has that this church in Thessalonica had stood firm in the Lord. This brings him great joy. And now we'll read from verse six of First Thessalonians three, as, as Paul expresses this joy. You can follow along, uh, where he he says that Timothy has returned with. With good news, good news. Paul writes, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all of our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith for now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Boy, there are, there are some solid, there are numerous solid uh, principles contained in this passage, uh, which in fact, they contain very important lessons for spiritual leadership, even, even church leadership. Uh, to begin with, in verse 6, it is very encouraging for Paul to receive good news about a church that is persevering in the faith. Paul delights that Timothy brought back the, this good news of their faith and their love. And when a local church is standing firm and thriving, folks, we need to be able to rejoice in that. Paul describes this, this good news uh, using the same language, the same Greek language that he uses everywhere else in the Bible for the preaching of the gospel. It's that good of news. And what he implies is this, it is equally satisfying to me to hear that this local church is persevering in Christ, standing firm in the faith as it is to hear the gospel preached. Says it is sweet news to my ears. And obviously, in, 
in chapter 4, we're going to see that he is going to push them to excel even more. But Paul is thrilled to learn how well this church is doing. Of course, we acknowledge that he, had a, he possessed a, a very close uh, personal connection to Thessalonica. Uh, but we also ought to think about this. Why would we not rejoice when we hear that a local church somewhere is thriving? Why would we not rejoice when another church is doing well? Yet it is possible, it, 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 is, it is possible for local churches to, to really struggle with the success of other churches. We should ask ourselves, do we really, do we really like to hear that, that other churches are, are thriving? That, that they're doing well? Or does it make us feel a little small when their parking lots are full and well, and, and our lot is full of potholes. Of course, we realize that full parking alone does not ensure that a church is standing firm in the Lord. In fact, we know it is possible the reason the parking lot is full is because they aren't really standing firm in the Lord. But nonetheless, when a local church is preaching the word, when they are preaching Christ and thriving, can we allow ourselves to rejoice in that? To see another church doing really well? Folks, we should. We should because their work is also for the kingdom of Christ. And to hear their work is growing ought to be for us good news. Oh, that is good news. It can sometimes feel for us as if there's only one church pie, all right? And we need to get our fair share of that pie, and if there's another church that's getting a large piece of that pie, uh, we think that, well, by default, we, well, there isn't as much pie left over for us. There'll be less pie remaining, but the truth is, folks, we aren't competing over one pie. There's actually no limit to the number of pies, so there doesn't need to exist any sense of rivalry with those who are eating a lot of pie. Follow me? And the same principle exists with eternal rewards. If that other church is doing really good, or really well, excuse me, we might think, well, maybe there won't be any reward left over for us when we get to heaven. But what do we know? We know that we will never be able to exhaust all of the potential rewards and praise that, that God will bestow upon those who faithfully serve Him. So, the, so there doesn't need to be any spirit of competition between churches and local Christians. Folks, you and I should be thrilled to see other Christians flourishing. We should be thrilled for them individually and as churches to thrive uh, because their success takes nothing away from us. Nor anything away from our ability to serve God by making more pies. I think Paul's excitement for Thessalonica, it is an important reminder to all of us that God does not view jealousy as a, as a pleasant trait. 
It's not an attractive trait to the Lord. Uh, and rather, instead of resenting his brother Abel, Cain should have simply offered his best to the Lord and let the chips fall. Simply give your local best to the Lord and let the chips fall where they may. Next in verse 6, the affection was being reciprocated between Paul uh, and the church when he learns that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, uh, just as we also long to see you. Uh, I imagine that Paul might have been more than a little bit concerned uh, that uh, due to the fact that he and Silas had to split town so quickly that there might have been a rumor circulating that uh, Paul didn't really care about them. They just wanted to save, save face and, and get out of town. Obviously, we know that that's not true, but he might have been concerned that those rumors are being circulated. But he says in verse 7, For this reason, brethren, in, in all of our distress and affliction, we, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Intense persecution had not caused, well, first Christian church of Thessalonica, hadn't caused them to collapse, hadn't caused them to dissolve. And Paul says that, that we're comforted by hearing of your persevering. And now, we really live now if you stand firm in the Lord. Certainly, Paul doesn't want his labor to, to be in vain. We saw that in our previous passage. Uh, his labor in the gospel, he wants to bear fruit. Uh, but we're going to learn here in the next passage, that'll be next week, uh, how the future of Thessalonica, it's not up to Paul. There he's going to acknowledge he is not the one commanding their destiny. It's not in Paul's hands, but their future remains in the hands of God. And for this reason, I don't believe Paul is expressing a personal concern that their perseverance is somehow going to affect him. That somehow their perseverance is going to affect his reward. His interest is not that they continue to stand firm in the faith because there will be something in it for him personally. So he, he, he isn't saying this with a, with a selfish motive in mind. Oh, I really rejoice if you folks stand firm. As if it means that his work means something more because of it. Because as long as Paul remains faithful on his end, scattering seed planting, watering, uh, he will receive his reward in full according to his own labor from Christ who works through him. And in that passage, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that each man will receive uh, his own reward according to his own labor. Uh, we're assured in that same passage that it is God who causes the growth. It's, it's a work of God who works through the Spirit and through Christians to cause growth. And next week in verses 12 and 13, we're going to find that Thessalonica's spiritual growth, it's determined by God. It's in the hands of God. So, so Paul's excitement for Thessalonica, uh, standing firm, it's not for his own good. It's 
It's for their own good. And it brings Paul and Silas and Timothy so much joy. So much joy to watch these brethren in Christ who are, who are walking in the truth. They're walking in the faith. They're not a feather in Paul's cap. It is rather exciting to watch God work through them. In 3 John verse 2, the Apostle John states, the beloved I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad, writes John, when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in the truth. And then he says, I have no greater joy than this than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. But that is good news. Why is this? Why, why are these apostles, Paul and John, so concerned that these early Christians are walking in the truth? Is it because God is glorified when Christians walk in truth? Yeah. Yeah, He is. Uh, that's a factor. Is it because their evangelistic witness to their neighbors and those surrounding them is more effective when Christians are faithful uh, yes, that too. Is it because Christians enjoy, honestly, quite honestly, a higher quality of life when they obey God? Certainly these are all factors. It is true. Uh, our health and our souls prosper. They prosper when we walk according to God's truth. And I believe each of these contribute to Paul's joy. But even more so, the root source of his joy is what the Apostle Peter refers to as a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. That's 1 Peter 1 and verse 22. Here's what I want us to recognize. Paul's concern for them is not motivated by his own reward. He is motivated by a love for God's people. He really loves them and wants what is best for them in Thessalonica. And in verse 8, it is now when Paul declares, well now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. He says, we really live. Do you, know what, do you want to know what real living is? Real living is a supreme joy that we experience when you unite with us in a mutual communion, a mutual commitment in standing firm to Christ. That's what supreme joy is. Your very presence among us, speaking to you folks here, not to Thessalonica, your very presence among us, your mutual fellowship with us, it stimulates us to really want to live. 
Our joy, my joy as a pastor, the joy of the elders, the joy of the deacons, the joy of the worship team, the joy of the servants who teach Sunday school. The joy that we have is watching one another stand firm in the Lord. There's no greater joy. You know, some people mistakenly conclude that joy is found in water skiing or, or world travel or car shows or football games. Nothing against the football game that's going on afterwards today, by the way. Enjoy your football game. I'm not exaggerating when I state our joy is found in you. That's what Paul is saying. And our joy is listening to you sing hymns, singing songs, lifting praises to Christ, watching you serve and grow and mature in the Lord, giving yourself fully to the kingdom of God. Well, that's joy. That's true joy. And some joy is lost when you're not. Is that not true? Well, it's surely true. When you arrive at church on Sunday and that smile does not greet you, even if they're only on vacation for a week, friends that you know, they're, they're out of town enjoying a wonderful weekend away with a family and oh, they're not there. Isn't it? It's the truth. You're glad for them that they're able to get away, but the face isn't there to smile and to rejoice, and there's just something lost. There's a sadness when people are missing, isn't there? But boy, when they're, when they're present, when they're singing, when they're smiling when they're laughing and rejoicing, when they are teaching and when they are sharing their lives, when there is no greater joy available on the face of the earth for Christians. There's no greater joy to be found than what we share in the body of Christ. You, you can't substitute anything to replace it. This is one of the reasons why Paul expresses in verse 9, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all of the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? Paul assures this, for it's all joy. Count it all joy, my brethren, even when you encounter various trials, says James. Even persecutions and afflictions. And all the time, God deserves thanks and praise. Folks, God has shown that He is at work in them. That's what really makes Paul rejoice. In their persevering through the affliction, God has displayed in the church, He's truly working through them. And all glory is given to God. For all the joy with which we rejoice concerning you, says Paul. And as Philippians 2 verse 13 states, For it is God who is at work within you, both to will 
and to work for his pleasure. We're glad to see God working through you. That brings us joy. It really does. And the rest of us, when we see that, when we watch God working through you, you know, we simply become beneficiaries. We get to share in the excitement of everything that God is doing through one another and enjoy the watch, uh, watching what Christ has accomplished. Folks, that can only be shared through Christians who persevere. You have to stand firm in the Lord. A theologian named G.L. Green states this, quote, Over and again, Paul and the other church leaders point to those Christians who are faithful to God as the source of their joy. He lists, and the man lists about a dozen passages here to affirm his point. I'll share just a couple of them. Philemon verse 7, where Paul writes, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Paul gets joy because Philemon is refreshing the brethren. He says, that brings me joy. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 3, Paul says to younger Timothy, Oh, I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. Why? He says, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. Even among tears, the sincere faith within you brings me joy. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, I'm so mindful of you that, that you remain in my prayers night and day. It's the same concern he expresses to Thessalonica as he develops the thought shared in verse 9. He says, what thanks can we render to God? And then verse 10, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Folks, Paul prayed earnestly both night and day. Now, it doesn't mean he prayed all night and all day, all right? But the passage does amplify both frequency and fervency of his prayers. And he had a yearning to complete what was lacking in their faith. He couldn't wait to see them again. For, for numerous theological gaps remained in their, in their thinking. Uh, those are going to be addressed in chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, there, there were a few fundamentals lacking. Part of it is because Paul and Silas had to skip town quickly. They, they had to leave. They had to depart in haste. But just for a preview of the topics that we're going to cover in the coming weeks... Work ethic is one of them. Work ethic is one of them. And we are going to learn uh, that Christians aren't slackers. We aren't moochers. We are hard workers. We each work hard to earn our own way. Another topic that Paul will address is striving for godliness and holy living. 
We'll turn that corner in just, in just a very short time. Paul needs to remind them and give them uh, further teaching about godliness. A third, then, will be extensive detail on, on Christ's second advent or his second coming. Uh, the Thessalonians were apparently left with an incomplete understanding of Christ's return when, when Paul and Silas fled that night. Uh, therefore, Paul is going to fill in some gaps. He's going to paint in some gaps in that picture in chapters 4 and 5. And then he's going to provide even further clarification in 2 Thessalonians. And I may realize, uh, I may be a little bit of an outlier on this. That's okay. I may, I may be an anomaly. Uh, but I, I don't get the feeling that the extensive detail that the apostles provide concerning Christ's second coming... I mean, there's a lot of ink spilt over it, all right? Uh, I don't think they, that they got together in a concerted effort to, to leave the events of Christ's return vague. I just don't buy that. Understanding the order of events surrounding the second coming of Christ, we've said again and again, it's not essential for Christian salvation. It isn't. But I, I also don't believe it's just shrouded in mystery. That we just can't know. We just can't figure it out somehow. I just don't think so. I also believe the instruction about Christ's return communicated through Peter, described by Jesus and explained to Corinth by Paul, I believe it's the same. They're not conflicting accounts of what is going to happen, nor confusing details uh, left behind to, be, to bewilder Christians. Um, so I'm going to present it in a way that, that concludes we can actually understand it. Paul's desire for Thessalonica is that they may be made complete, not left incomplete. The same is true for us. And so he prays for them. And the substance of Paul's prayer is going to begin in verse 11. We're going to begin on that next week. Uh, And there Paul asks God for a reunion with them, a physical reunion. uh, An increase in their love for one another. That's going to be a great passage. And for purity as they wait upon the Lord Jesus to return. And Paul's prayer then offers... Kind of a closing practical lesson for us today. First, there is, there's no reason to be jealous of what God is accomplishing through other Christians and other churches. We ought to rejoice in what we see and when we see Christ being glorified in saints. Secondly, uh, our supreme joy exists in the fellowship of the saints. Sharing our lives with others who persevere in the faith. There is no greater joy And third, when Paul hopes to complete what is lacking in others, he prays that God will achieve it. Verses 11 through 13 reveal Paul's prayer that God will sovereignly accomplish those things needed to make the Christians in Thessalonica stand firm. And folks, this is, this is important, especially for spiritual leadership, because very often we just like to you know, whip people into shape, right? 
When Christians fail to persevere and they don't stand firm or don't find joy in our fellowship, what do we so often do? We just grow frustrated and we say to ourselves something like, what is wrong with that guy? What is wrong with that girl? Why can't they stick it out? Why can't they see it through? And when their life just doesn't display a perseverance in Christ, the scripture would remind us the remedy is prayer. Yeah, preaching the words essential. It's an element of sanctification. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So preaching is essential. So we'll continue to preach Christ. But Paul describes himself as praying night and day for God to accomplish what he can't. Because as we observed during our scripture reading earlier from Colossians chapter 2, Paul states that a mystery of past ages has now been made manifest, which is Christ in you. And by His Spirit, He indwells Christians. And Christ was planning all along to take up residency in Christians, to strengthen them. And therefore, Paul describes himself saying, I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. Paul realizes it, uh, that it is the knowledge of Christ. It is the spiritual power within every believer. With every true believer. So it would be more effective. It would be more effective if we would spend more time in prayer for the fellow believers. That would, that would demonstrate that we truly believe that God is at work in them. You follow me? Because if we can pray for the fellow believers, that they will stand firm, that they will grow, that they will be strengthened, we know by the Spirit God can achieve that in them. And as you examine the Scriptures, you'll begin to notice that Paul is most often seen praying for entire congregations to be completed that the churches would be completed in the Lord. Folks, we can, we can surely pray for individuals be, to be sanctified, uh, and we will, and we do. But the focus on the individual is not as important as it is on the body. Because every individual is part of the body, right? So if we're praying for the completeness and the sanctification of the body, are we praying for every individual? We are. We are. The focus on the individual is more of an American device, though we do focus on individuals. Paul's focus is on the church because we are all individual members of the church. And when there are deficiencies in the whole body, we are to pray, we are to pray for them. So, um, rather today for closing, and many times we will pray for one another individually, I'm going to ask 
that we begin to pray more for this church. That we pray for this body to be made complete. And that God will be glorified through us together as one body. And that we will stand firm in the Lord all together as his church. That type of prayer, that captures all of us. Let's do that.